Good morning. This is Pastor Todd. I want to thank you for tuning in to the Gathering Place podcast. This week, I am sharing a message for the church. I trust the Lord uses it to encourage and build you up. And here is this week's message. And his ministry, and he does things that none of us even know he does. He's working for the, for, uh, the benefit of everything that TGP is about. Father, bless him. Fill him with your Holy Spirit, Father God. And we thank you for his ministry here in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Byron. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to the gathering place. Uh, for those tuning in on the podcast or uh, the Zoom meeting, welcome. Thanks for tuning in. And, uh, oh, Kara, I didn't even get you uh, verses. I'm sorry. Hebrews 12. It's That's just Hebrews. Yep, Hebrews 12. Um, <clears throat> so we're, we're continuing our series on Hebrews. After the little mix-up of uh, chapter 11 and then chapter 10, we're back on track with chapter 12. And, uh, you know, chapter 11 was the, uh, the faith chapter, and chapter 10 was building up to the faith chapter. And so now we're on 12. So uh, with chapter 12, we're going to be looking at um, the author starts taking... Uh, Starts moving in a direction of like, hey, like we need to be on track in the faith walk. Like we, you know, we have the great cloud of witnesses. We've talked about that. We've talked about like some of their examples with Abraham, with Enoch. Now let's get to the church and let's look at what we need to be doing. And so that's where Hebrews 12 kind of takes this pivot into like, yes, we remember all of this with that foundation built. What do we do with it? So this is going to be 12. So I'm just going to start in uh, verse 1. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us now throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. If you have some of the older translations that might say the author and the finisher of our faith. <clears throat> for the joy set before him, Jesus, for that joy, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. <clears throat> Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So he's putting the focus on Jesus, right? Jesus walked this out. Jesus suffered everything that he suffered because he knew what the end goal was. And so the author is saying, focus on Jesus and be like him and keep that end goal in mind so that we can endure. He goes on in verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood and have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the ones he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. So verse 7, Endure hardships as discipline. God is treating you as his children, for what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? 
They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, in order that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So verse 12, Therefore strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. So verse 12, what the author is doing is they're taking a portion out of Proverbs 4, verse 24 through 27, stating it because it's, an, the, the, it's assumed that the audience knows this, these verses. And so they're, they're taking a familiar phrase that the audience knows and then adds a little bit to it to make it practical in their everyday. So Proverbs 4 says this, Keep your mouth free of perversity. Keep corrupt talk away from far from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Give careful thought to make level the paths for your feet and be steadfast in all your ways. Do not turn to the right or the left. Keep your foot from evil. So, the people who read Hebrews would know that full context in Proverbs. So when, they, when the author takes that little snippet and puts it out, like all of the weight, all of the, the baggage, if you will, of the original context has that full weight. Just like if I were to come up here and say, you know, there's a famous phrase that went out, you know, around 2008, hope and change. There's a lot of baggage in those two words, especially if we followed the politics in the last 20 years. Hope and change. And uh, I don't need to explain myself because we all know what's going on with that, right? Or build back better. <laughs> Right? So, <laughs> loaded phrases, right? Same thing's happening here. They know the audience, they drop a phrase, they drop a, a small quote from Proverbs, and all of that baggage comes rushing into the mind. So they know what's going on. So they just drop that to make that point. So anyway, little side notes on how to read quotes from the New Testament that's coming out of the Old Testament. Keep on. Verse 14. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. Verse 18, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire. To darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. We remember that, right, in Exodus, when Israel comes to the mountain and God starts coming down and they're like, no, Moses, you go and talk for us. <clears throat> because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it will be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion. So we got Mount Sinai, Mount Zion. So the author's making a, a dichotomy here. Mount Sinai, the first one, Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, and to 
the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks better, speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they do not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain, which would be uh, eternal things. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful, and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. It's a lot of verses. That's, that's uh, 29 verses. That's a mouthful. So, <coughs> so this author covers a ton of stuff um, in this big chunk. Um, and we're going to kind of break some of that down. I basically pulled out three, three main uh, focal points. Uh, the first one is the race marked out for us. So we're in this journey. We're in this race, if you will, and uh, what that entails. Second is the Lord's discipline. So we're going to drill down on that a little bit. And then third, how to keep ourselves clean. Um, little side notes before I, I get started in this, because um, I get excited about new things. Um, I stumbled across um, a theologian. He just passed away uh, this year, sadly, because like this guy would have been my hero, um, and I just found out about him. But he has done some really phenomenal research in connecting uh, some concepts in the Old Testament to the New Testament by seeing how that developed in the interim period, that 400-year gap between the Old and the New Testament. Uh, so what he's able to do is re recreate or, or recapture the worldview, is what he calls it, of uh, Old Testament Jews. Uh, and one of, the, one of the focal points, is, and I'm, I'm gonna, this is as far as I'm going to go with it, because you can go into a deep, deep hole with this, is that in the Old Testament... Especially if you read the Greek version, because the Greek version has, uh, you can see more connections with that in the Greek New Testament. They have this term, hagioi, which is translated holy ones. And in the Old Testament, holy ones is almost always indicating an angelic type being. Uh, and so you have this, this host of angelic beings known as holy ones that appear. And that same phrase when it shows up in the New Testament, is Hagioi, and it's referring to those who have been redeemed under the blood of Jesus. And so there's this linguistic connection and this Jewish worldview connection that like, there are some holy ones in the Old Testament who have defected from their position and have been stored up for judgment. Um, we see that in Jude. Uh, we see that in a couple of other areas. And so what we're kind of seeing in this Jewish worldview is that those who are coming under Jesus are now being titled holy ones, the same phrase, the same connotation as the angelic beings in the Old Testament. And that's where we get this tie-in that we're going to be rulers in heaven because the ones that rebelled are losing their position. And then when we come into that from glory to glory, right, in the New Testament, when we reunite with Jesus, we will be placed in those positions of authority where the heavenly beings have been cast down for their disobedience. So that's, that's kind of a framework that's, 
that's the drive for some of what's going on here. So when we talk about going into a kingdom that's eternal, like we are now taking part as sons of the living God in this eternal category. We're not just flesh and bone. We're so much more than that. <clears throat> and so what, what uh, the author here, we're going to talk about this race that's marked out before us, that we are part of this major mission that God has started. And this major mission, he initiated it. It was carried on by his people from Abraham on in the Old Testament. So they've laid this foundation, thousands of years worth of uh, testimony of God doing things for his people in the Old Testament. And then when Jesus comes and brings in that next level for this new covenant we are stepping into that. And so we are picking up the baton, so to speak, and taking on the next leg of the race until Jesus comes back. And so that's this whole uh, analogy that's going on. So we're part of this heavenly mission that started by God, advanced by the Old Testament saints, and concluded or culminating by the church, by us, through the gospel. And that's why this author references this great cloud of witnesses, because the faithful that have gone on are still alive and are still well, and they are bearing testimony to God's faithfulness as we're walking this walk out. <clears throat> and that starts the momentum that we have inherited. So we're picking up this now, and we're going to step into this momentum. When we align ourselves with Jesus, when we become believers, when we come under the blood, we are stepping into this momentum that God's been building for thousands of years, and we step into that. And the author of Hebrews is telling us, like, we have a trajectory. We have a path, we have a race, we have a mission to go on, and we have an end goal in sight. Therefore, in order to be the most effective in this, we need to throw off sin and distractions that hinder us in that way. Because the only way we can make this path is through holiness. You know, if Jesus makes us holy, then we're called to learn those holy practices, to live a holy life. So we're stepping into this thing that's already in place. It's bigger than us. It's bigger than my own personal sense of self-interest. We're talking about God's like universal, like the whole universe recreation type setup with redemption. And we get to play a part in that. So we need to do our part, and in order to do that well, we have to throw off the distractions. You know, it, you know what? It, there's clear sin in the Bible, and then there's things that just distract us from the gospel. You know, the average person now spends, what is it, 2,000 to 2,500 hours a year on their phones. Like, how much more time could we be devoting to pursuing the gospel if we would just turn our screens off. Like, I mean, like, I, I don't know, like, people, I'm 43, right? So people that are older than me, like, I don't know how much of a deter, how much of a distraction the phones are, like, for people older than me, that I know for me, like, when I want to check out, that's the first thing I do. Pull it out, turn it on, and then follow my fancy anywhere I go. You know, I, I put controls in the house, you know, to make sure that certain things can't be accessed by me or by the kids by accident. But you know what? Every once in a while, I'll still pop on Facebook. I'll look at the news. 
how much of that time could be regained? I mean, like, this is me pointing to myself too, right? How much of that time can be regained if I would just turn the phone off and open up Scripture or open up a book? Like, how many of us are actually reading books now? I mean, like, so let's throw off those things that hinder us, right? What else hinders me? Driving down the road. Sometimes I'll turn on not Jesus music. <laughs> not that it's a sin, right? I mean, like, I'm not going to be, like, so legalistic. Like, if it's not praising Jesus all day, every day, then it's a sin. But how much of the, do I get distracted by that instead of really focusing and drilling down? So there's, there's a lot that, that say that. Like, like, we can all pinpoint those things that distract us. And so there are some things that maybe we do struggle with on a, on a sin level. But there's things that's not sin, that's kind of neutral territory, that's normal, but we just overindulge in it to the point that we're distracted from our walk with the Lord. And so this author's saying, like, there's this big thing happening. God set things in motion thousands of years ago. We have been granted this privilege of salvation. We've been granted this gift to partner with the creator of the universe to fulfill this mission and to bring redemption to all creation, the trees, the grass, humanity, animals, redemption. You know, Peter talks about, about the heavens and the earth will pass away, and there will be a new heavens and a new earth, and that we'll live eternally. Um, uh, to quote the, the scientist, uh, the, astro, the, the, the astrophysicist uh, Hugh Ross, he's a, he's a Christian apologist, he says, in order for that to happen, this kind of blew my mind, like, whoa, I never thought about that. In order for a new heavens and a new earth that can be eternal to happen, there has to be a new physics. A new physics that does not involve entropy. You know, the degradation of things. For us to live eternal, we have to stop aging somehow. There has to be a whole new biology in this setup. And God's inviting us to be in that. And like I said, pointing to me, how much am I hindering that mission? And I just sit down going, oh, man, it's been a rough day. What's on Facebook? Like, what kind of a hindrance are we facing in that? And here we, we've got this privilege. I mean, like, this is somebody who's greater than the most powerful king in all the world. This is somebody who's greater than, than all of the government officials all the way up to the presidency. Creator of the universe, called us to be partnered, and what are we wasting our time on, right? I mean, it's something to think about. And the author's saying, keep, stay on focus, right? Uh, to quote Star Wars, stay on target, stay on target, right? Stay on the target. They say we, the author says we have to keep our eye on the goal. And that goal is Jesus. Our goal, our focal point, is Jesus. He's the author and the finisher, right? The starter and the perfecter of our faith. We focus on Jesus because it all begins and ends with him. And so the author is saying, look to Jesus as the example so that we don't lose heart. I mean, like Jesus had a mission. He knew he was going to suffer. He knew he was going to die. He knew what was on the other side. So he stayed the course. And that's where we're at. Like, we're on mission. We know what's on the other side. We stay the course. We keep that focus in mind. 
And we keep that focus in mind. We will come through and we will do this with joy and we will endure with joy. So that's the race. That's, that's, that's the big vision. Like we as the church, we've got a mission. We focus on Jesus. Drop the hindrances so that we can go forward and endure whatever hardship comes against us. <clears throat> then they transitions over to this discipline language. And the first thing I'm going to say is, and I've said this before, maybe you guys have heard me say this, we have to get the thought that discipline equals spanking out of our minds. That's not what discipline is. Spanking is corporal punishment. Discipline is training and guiding. There's a big difference. Discipline is not punishment. Um, we, we use the term discipline like in terms of corporal punishment. We've used it so much that that's just, it's synonymous in our minds. And I say we need to make a break with that. Like, do I smack my kids' hands whenever they do something they're not supposed to? Yes. They need to learn if they're not going to learn. It's usually after I've told them, like, ten times, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, right? It's the guiding. It's the training aspect. So, now that I've made that little caveat, I'm going to go reread a passage where we've taken, uh, that we just read, that we're going to take the discipline spanking part out of it, and we're going to rephrase it. So here's a rereading from Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. My son, do not make light of the Lord's training. And do not lose heart when he corrects you. Because the Lord trains the ones he loves. And he causes to be more humble or to be restrained everyone he accepts as his son. All right. What was the original reading of that? Hmm. Do not make light of the Lord's discipline. So we're going to change that. Do not make light of the Lord's training. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Now, rebuke's pretty harsh, right? It can be harsh. So do not lose heart when he corrects you. Because the Lord disciplines the ones he loves, right? So the Lord trains the ones he loves. And he chastens. That's another one. Chastening. The other definition for chasten is the Lord causes to be more humble or causes to be more restrained everyone he accepts as a son. Does that kind of change the way you see that verse? Don't make light of the Lord's training, the Lord's guidance. Don't throw it off as just something flippant. Use it. Grow from it. <clears throat> so, here's the advice that, that I have when it comes to reading that kind of a passage. The scripture says to view hardship as training. Don't view hardship as discipline, as punishment. So we go through hard things. Difficult things happen. This is life. It's a fallen world. You know what? People get hit by cars. You know, babies die prematurely. Like We have hard things. Like two, year, two years ago, I lost my last parent. I am officially an orphan now. You know, uh, both my parents are gone. That's a hard thing to go through. And at the same time, that hardship can be used by God 
to multiply things in eternity. All in how we respond to it. Do we submit our hearts to the Lord? Part of my testimony is that I came to faith because my mom got diagnosed with cancer when I was a teenager. And like she, she wasn't supposed to make it two months. She made it a year. And in that point, <clears throat> I had already, already gone through um, like Eastern meditation practices. I'd gone through witchcraft. Like I was able to cast spells, all, do all kinds of stuff. Like that's why I'm charismatic. I've seen too much to be like that stuff doesn't happen. No, it happens. And uh, anyway, side note, none of that was able to give me any type of peace for my mom's cancer. And it, it was incapable of bringing any healing to that as well. Now, did God heal my mom of cancer? No, she actually died the following year. And I had to make a choice when in that, in that moment of crisis. And the choice was either say, God, you didn't heal my mother, how dare you, and then turn my back on him, or hold on to him because that's all I had left. So I chose to hold on. That was me. Some people don't do that. I did. That's, that's, that was the decision I made. I held on to God. It was a hardship. Never once in my life have I thought that my mom died of cancer because she sinned. Or that I had to go through that hardship because my heart was hardened toward the Lord. Like that was not in my frame of thinking. It was a little bit later after I'd gotten conditioned by, by church people that hardship can be a punishment from the Lord. Oh, what a terrible lesson to learn and how hard is it to unlearn that lesson. So I'm going to tell you right now, just because things are hard, I'm not making light of it, we go through horrendous things in life. Some people more horrendous than others. It's not punishment from God. It's a hardship. And if we trust the Lord, that hardship can multiply things in eternity. And having said that, hardships can be seen as training. Paul talks about him and his traveling companions going through difficult times and going through hardship, going through difficult like, like all kinds of, of tough things. And he says, don't disdain that. Because you never know, once you come through that, how many more people you can encourage and build up who are going through something similar. There's always a purpose. You know, uh, whenever uh, Aletheia was coming along, there was a hard, hard time I was facing um, in the financial arena. And I was going to the Lord. I just, I just felt like, like you know, I, I could have spent 20 years capitalizing on skill levels that would pay a lot more money than a preacher degree. <laughs> you know, like you have those thoughts, right? And, and I went to the Lord, and He said, "Nothing will be wasted. Like you have been faithful with the kingdom, and you are faithful with the kingdom. Don't look at the the bank account. Look at the kingdom." Because nothing is wasted. Like he had to correct. You know, some people would say that was a rebuke. Well, maybe you can use the word rebuke. It didn't feel like he was going, pay attention. It was him graciously saying, it's not going to waste, Todd. Graciously telling me, it's okay. I've got this. I'm not flapped by it. Because, you know, I'm God. Who am I going to say, oh my God, to? I don't get surprised. Right? So he encourages me in that. Very rarely have I ever felt like the Lord has just like backhanded me. And I, because I don't see 
the grace of God as something that, that forces like discipline and spankings on us. It's, it's usually a guiding hand saying, come and I will help. And I try to emulate that to my kids as much as I can, as, as much as my limited humanity will allow for. But we view the hardship as training, not punishment, because God's not out to get us. God is treating us as his children. Because what children aren't trained by their parents, right? What children aren't guided, you know? I'm trying to teach my three-year-old now. Instead of just saying, I want, I want, I'm trying to get him, please may I have. It's so much nicer to hear, may I please have this? Nah, I want milk. Like, you're not a primitive. <laughs> <laughs> we're civilized, right? We use proper language. We want people to like us. We, people like us because we're kind, right? So God trains us up in the proper ways. And it says we've all had human fathers that trained us, and we respected them for it. They trained us for a little while. God trains us for our good, and he has infinite knowledge, all the ins and outs, all the bad stuff inside of us. And he still trains us, and he still says, I love you. And I want to bring you into this holy way. Because I'm going to make a little jump back. Anytime you see saints in the New Testament, you think in the Old Testament, when that word showed up, it meant angelic beings. We're being elevated to the status of angelic beings in the kingdom of heaven. The term for that is holy ones. And so we have to be holy if we're going to faithfully walk in these holy echelons. In God's kingdom. You know, he says, you know, you're going to judge angels. He tells us that in Corinthians. You're going to judge angels. You're going to judge that prince of Persia that showed up in Daniel. You're going to judge the prince of Germany, if you want to call it that, right? We're going to be elevated to that position. And not just like messengers like, oh, I'm going to judge this, this angel because he didn't give the right message to Justin in time. Like We're talking like authority structures, right? The principalities and powers that Paul talks about. We're going to be over them. We need to get our stuff together here because Jesus is what? You're faithful in little, right? What with the little 80 years we have here on earth? If you're faithful with that, you'll be entrusted with much more. And I know I'm taking it to a larger scale. You'll be entrusted with much more ruling over angelic beings. Oh, well, that reframes themes a little bit, doesn't it? Holy. Be holy. Okay, so we've inherited this race, right? And the Lord's training us. He's not punishing us. He's training us to prepare us for this. Like, heaven forbid I walk into a boxing ring and go up against an experienced boxer without any training. Man, I would get creamed. Same thing here. You think we're going to go toe-to-toe with angelic beings without learning how to practice the discipline of being holy? Forget it. I think that's why most of us feel like we're getting ripped to and from by demons because we just don't have a solid footing on who we really are in Jesus. If we knew, like those demons couldn't touch us. We know the scripture, greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. Why is this even a battle? Why is it even a trouble? Because we give them the time of day, we give them the authority away. I mean, it's the same thing that Adam and Eve did, right? Serpent says, don't eat that, because you'll be like God. We disobey, we just gave him the keys to the kingdom. And we're going to do it again as Christians? No. We know who we are in Christ. 
We become holy. We outrank them now. Just saying. So I don't think the demons can give us a heyday. Just because something bad happens doesn't mean the, the devil caused me to stub my toe on the bedpost. because I forgot to put my shoes on. You know, it's just... There's a lot of superstition that gets dropped up in, in this stuff. Because we just don't really fully know who we are in Christ and the power that we walk in. And I think that's something we need to recapture a vision on. You know, as we go into the prayer time, maybe we say, Lord, help me know who I am in you. Maybe, maybe that's something we need to be asking about. The Lord guides and disciplines us so that we are conditioned, we're capable of carrying on this load, right? Leads us to our third and final point. Keeping ourselves clean. So what's this holy living look like? It doesn't mean that like, uh, maybe I'll, I'll never go and eat like unkosher food again. You know, like Jesus, he, he poo-pooed that in the Gospels. He said, what you eat doesn't make you clean or unclean. It goes in the mouth and goes out the other end. It's what comes out of your mouth because that's in your heart. That's what makes you unclean. So now we're getting to a heart issue, an attitude issue, right? So Hebrews tells us, Make every effort to live at peace with everyone and be holy. Now, there are some people that are just so contentious that you just can't be at peace with. My opinion, they don't get access. I just shut them out. They don't get access. Like, I'll try. I'll, I'll give a good, give the good college try, right, to use the old phrase. Like, I'll give people a chance. I'll give them the benefit of the, about, the doubt if there isn't, like, a good faith effort to reciprocate, I don't have the emotional energy for it. You know what? i got three kids and a wife at home, and i got a church to help pastor. Like, I don't have time for your antics. That's my opinion. Like, there are people who really are trying, and they're really struggling. And that's where discernment comes in. That's a whole other thing. But you do your best to live at peace with everybody, and you be holy. Well, okay, what's that look? We have to see to it that we don't fall short of God's grace. Now this encompasses, the way they actually say it is, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. That means, like, the people in our circles that we know are pursuing God, like, we can encourage each other up. There's a whole communal thing. This whole me and Jesus, I'll, I'll say this till the day I die because I grew up, oh, I just need me and Jesus. It's, I don't know if it's a southern thing or what, but it's more than just me and Jesus. It's community. It is people of God doing this life together on mission. We might be in different circles geographically. For whatever reason, God's called us to be here and now, so this is our community. We encourage each other. We make sure we don't fall short of the great grace. And to make sure that no bitter root grows up. Bitterness is, is the death knell to Christian thriving. Like, if you let bitterness get in there, it will just destroy everything. Like, it's that mustard seed that will just destroy all the other plants in the garden, and all you just have is this mustard seed plant. And the bitterness is the same thing. All you just have is a bitterness plant inside of you. <laughs> and that will, that will grow, and it will spread and defile many. That's what the Hebrews author is saying. There's no room for bitterness. And if you see like a bitterness growing in somebody and you encourage them, you know, you got to cut that out or it's going to destroy you and it will destroy other, everybody around you. If they don't, like you have my permission, as if you really need it, 
to say contained, limited access, because that bitterness will destroy, and that's not in the will of God. And then also see that no one is sexually immoral. I think for the most part, we're, we're pretty established here in, in our church. You know, when my kids get a little bit older, this might be a little bit more pronounced in my mind about addressing it. Um, but that's another thing that will just destroy somebody's ability to thrive. Like people get taken advantage of, male and female, sexually, and it just messes up their emotions, it messes up their psychology, it causes all kinds of messes. It's not just a physical act. It is something that is mind, body, spirit. It's all intertwined. It's like a big wad of rubber bands, and, and you just try to take that apart, and it's just a mess. It's, it's a mess. And so following it the Lord's way is the safest way to keep from getting that so tangled up that you're so hindered by that that you can't even think about the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> and then the last thing he brings out is that she too that nobody is godless like Esau. I you guys remember Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance uh, as the oldest son. So not to be driven by immediate gratification. You know, if you want to use psychology terms, it's the id. It's the, oh, I want, right? And that's the thing I'm trying to, like, linguistically work out of my kids is not, I want, I want. May I please have, right? To be... Like more reasonable about it. I found out recently that uh, that whole uh, account of Esau and Jacob in Genesis, um, I'm not very fluent in Hebrew. I could, I could make my way with a dictionary. It would take a long time. But there's that account in, in Genesis, and the Hebrew uh, actually uses, even for that time, a primitive version of Hebrew when Esau's talking. Uh, and so it... it Whenever we read the English, they kind of smooth it out and make it a little bit more articulate. But it basically, when Esau comes up in the Hebrew, he comes up to Jacob. It basically means he's basically saying, like, we want stew. Like that's how the Hebrew's breaking down. Like it's really primitive. It's, it's almost like my three-year-old. I want milk. That's cost you your birthright. I want milk. All right, you know, like that's 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 the level that we're talking about here. You know, because a grown man comes up and goes, we want stew. And Jacob's like, all right, give me your, give me your birthright as a firstborn. Okay, me wants to. That's, that's how that works. And um, we need to see to it that we don't do that. You know, that, you know, if I'm driving down the road and I'm really, really trying to get my blood pressure under control, I don't go, oh, huh, me want Taco Bell. <laughs> you know, like, like I know that's going to blow my blood pressure right out of the water. Right? So being somebody who, who can look at the far goal, right, that insight, the end of the mission, Jesus, heavenly realm, reigning with the Lord, and having that value so much that I'm willing to drop off all of the hindrances and all the sin because that is far more valuable than stew, right? And milk, Taco Bell. Pick your, pick your food of vice of choice. So then he ends it with this. Therefore... Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. I, in my opinion, like I, I, I got my start in a Pentecostal church, 
And I'm not saying we should go back to this. But I remember there being times when like, we'd be playing the worship songs and then all of a sudden it would just get quiet. Maybe you guys have experienced this, maybe you haven't. Just get quiet. And then somebody would just stand up and just blurt out in tongues. And then it would be quiet for about another minute or two. And then somebody else would stand up. And it's, you know, being Pentecostal, they have a penchant for the, uh, for the dramatic, very loud, booming voice, a voice from the Lord, right? I'm not saying that that's how it should be done. I'm saying that was my experience. However, that silence was reverence. There was a respect for what was going on. And I think the modern church, and I'll put me in here as well, we have lost a sense of reverence on all of God. That we really, like a lot of us have kind of adopted this buddy Christ, like Jesus is my buddy uh, mentality, that we forget like this is holy. And there was a time where if, if the stand was, you know, uh, a lamp for Jesus, that if I just went and did this, I would drop dead. Like, we forget that. We forget Aaron's two sons burned strange fire, whatever that is, and fire shot out of the temple and burned them. Like, that's, that's the holy God that we're serving. That doesn't happen now, right, because we're under the blood. We have been made holy. I think we would do well to remember that because this is a little Leviticus type thing. I'll say this and then I'll, I'll wrap this up. There's a lot of animal sacrifices that are prescribed in Leviticus. There's like, I don't know, 28 chapters, something like that in Leviticus. You read that. If they followed that to the T, I mean, we're talking thousands of animals every year, just slaughtered. And um, one of the things that we've, we've kind of started doing is reading the New Testament back into the Old Testament, right? And so we, we actually put New Testament theology into the Old Testament, and uh, I don't think, I think we lose a lot in that process. In Leviticus, the whole purpose of the blood sacrifices in the temple, the whole purpose was not to clean you and me. The whole purpose of those blood sacrifices was to decontaminate the holy ground because of my contamination. It never washed me clean of my sins. That's, that's Old Testament theology. The, that bull that I bring to be slaughtered was just to make sure that when I came to worship, I wasn't struck dead on the spot and that God's temple stayed clean. It was all about purifying the holy items, not purifying me. It just granted me a temporary position to be in the Lord's presence. That changed dramatically with the new covenant because now... Jesus' blood cleans, cleanses us. It doesn't cleanse the temple. It cleanses us. 
Uh, I don't know, this might be new information for some people, and some of you might just be tired by now. I don't know. But it was such a shift that when Paul says that Jesus' blood applies to us and cleanses us, it was a total different paradigm than any Jew in that time would have been thinking. Because the Jews were always, cleanse the temple, cleanse the temple, blood cleanses the temple so that I don't die. Now the blood cleanses me? Like, what? What? So when Paul talks about it, he, he expounds on that. You are the temple. In the olden days, they constantly had to purify that temple with the blood of bulls and goats to keep the temple clean because that's where God dwelled and God can't be in a contaminated area. That temple's gone. Where does God dwell? In us. So what does the blood purify? Us. We are the temple of the living God. So Hebrews, we should walk with a view of our body and our lives as being like the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament. So we do not contaminate ourselves with sin. And we do not bring common things into it. Right now, I'm not going to say that like you need to be praying 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, because it's just, life has to happen. You know, I mean like, but God has declared things clean. God has made us holy. And so with our hearts and with our minds and with our actions, it should come out of that understanding and not anything else. Like, the end goal, my appetite is like, me want steak and I go cook a steak versus I'm serving the Lord, the living God, and I will feed this temple steak. The end goal is the same, right? I'm making steak, but the heart motive is happening. I'm holy. I'm made holy. Because God dwells inside of me. And so the author of Hebrews is making this whole framework. We have communion with God. We have a mission with God. We are the temple of the living God. We're in this giant mission with God. We are made holy, so we should act likewise. We should let that be the motive for how we interact with things. Reverence and awe. So, in the sense that the Old Testament people would have reverence and awe for the, the temple and the holy items, I think we should have that reverence and awe amongst ourselves as believers and as Christians. Which would be far more motivating, I think, in my opinion, to be willing to say, hey, you better be careful with that root of bitterness. And uh, we better be careful with that distraction because it's going to slip us into contaminating the holy temple, which is our bodies. Anyway, uh, I'll end on that. In conclusion, we're on this journey, started by our predecessors, uh, the Old Testament faithful. We're continuing that journey. We do that by keeping our eye on Jesus. We're going to encounter difficulties. We're going to have challenges. We're going to have hardships. It's life. We look at those challenges as training opportunities, not as punishments from God. God is empowering us to become holy. We're learning to be holy in all of these difficulties so that we can be holy with him. Let's not view discipline as a punishment or as spankings, but rather as guiding us toward this perfect holiness worthy of God and worthy of a temple for God to dwell in. And we practice uh, things to pursue holiness. We 
we try to live at peace with people. The whole declaration of the angels during the Christmas story is peace and goodwill to all men. If that's the start of the gospel, I think that should be like the foundation point for us as believers. Like, you know what? Say, speak the truth in love. If you see a lie, don't be afraid to call it out. And don't be abrasive about it as much as possible. Be at peace. Be a kind, peaceful person. It's this frame of mind. We support each other communally, guarding against bitterness, guarding against sexual immorality, uh, guarding against short-sightedness and, and, and id-driven or like immediate gratification distractions. So we ensure the grace of God thrives in each of us. And we pursue God. We live holy, we pursue God knowing that we are temples of the Holy Spirit. The Holy God lives inside of us. And we should then let our lives, our attitudes, and our actions spring out of that. So that's, uh, that's Hebrews 12 with a, a little bit of a, you know, a flavoring of Proverbs and a, a side order of Leviticus. So dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. And thank you that you have called us to partner with you. That you are calling us sons and daughters of the living God. And Lord, help us to draw close to you. Help us to know who you are more. and Help us to know ourselves the way you see us. Lord, and drive us, Father, to live more for you in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, convict us of sin and of wrongdoing. Help us keep our hearts pure before you. And help guard us against uh, bitterness and selfish appetites that would counteract the kingdom of heaven. We give you the thanks, the praise, the glory, and the honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Hello again, this is Pastor Todd. I pray the Lord uses my message today to strengthen your walk with God. If you are blessed by this message and would like to support the ministry of the Gathering Place financially, I encourage you to use our online giving portal at tgpchicago.org. The portal uses PayPal's secure site so none of your information is compromised. Once again, thank you for tuning in to the Gathering Place podcast. God bless you, and have a great week.